Hello, I wanted to take a moment to thank you for listening and also to explain why you might hear ads like this before, during, or even after an episode. We're a small but mighty team here at Realm, and to help fund our shows, we promote products or services that we think you'd enjoy from a variety of sponsors. If any of our ads interest you, one of the best ways to support us is by visiting the link or using the promo code in the ad. It's pretty much a win-win since you can get some great deals and we can keep making awesome shows like this one. You can also visit realm.fm slash partners for more information about our sponsors and how to access the different promotions. Thanks again for joining us in our corner of the universe. Listen away. Contained herein are the heresies of Radolf Buntwine, erstwhile monk-turned-traveling medical investigator. Join me as I uncover the blasphemous truth of a plague-ridden world. That ours is not a loving God, and we are not its favored children. The Heresies of Radolf Buntwine, coming January 2nd, wherever podcasts are available. Realm presents Bullet Catcher, Season 2, Episode 11. Wolves and Lambs When you're a child, you're unafraid of death. Then, it seems with every passing year, you grow more afraid. And why is that? What do we learn that makes us so afraid? Is it pain? Loneliness? Is it knowledge itself? Is it because we learn many times over the evil that others can do? Or is it the discovery of how indifferent the world is to our pain? The wind will blow. The rain will fall. The desert will dry us out until there's nothing left. Just sand crystals that used to be skin and blood and bone. And growing up means unlearning all those fears. You learn different ways to not be afraid. And chief among them is this. Pain is not death. This too shall pass. And sometimes, if you're very lucky, someone will kiss you just right and make you feel invincible. Like you're either more alive than you've ever been or that you're already dead. And either way, it's okay. A knock rouses me from sleep. When I answer the door, rubbing sleep from my eyes, Zephyr's looking at me like he can't believe I'm standing there in my socks. The runner's here, he says. Everyone's gathered in the big top. When Zephyr leaves, I quickly pull on my clothes, splash water on my face, and run out to the big top. The gunslinger's just leaving as I make it to the entrance. He eyes me like maybe he recognizes me, but then he just keeps walking, climbs into his motor buggy, and drives away. Inside, everyone's still standing around Knack in the center of the ring. Everyone save Mao, who sits off to one side in a wheelchair with a quilt tucked in around her legs. Everyone's too tightly gathered around Knack, so I let it be for now. Morning, I say to Mao, stopping a few feet away, out of striking distance. Don't you morning me, she growls. It's barely morning. 
Another minute or two and it would be afternoon. Do you think your brother is sleeping till noon? Or don't you think he's dreaming up new ways to kill you? I have to give it to her. She knows how to say just the thing to get my blood going. Her eyes fall on Knack in the center of the crowd, fielding questions from his troop. And when she catches me looking at him too, she leans forward and clicks her fingers in front of my face and says, When I tell you to do something or to not do something, I expect you to obey me. I'm about to apologize when suddenly I remember what she told me last night, that I'm a wolf. Hell, maybe I'm stronger and angrier and smarter and more of a wolf than she is. So I spit on the ground and say, well, it happened. But it won't happen again, she hisses. I look her in the eye and say, it might. And then she does the most unexpected of things. She smiles and sits back again. Hmm. Good, she says. A wolf takes what she wants. Hell be damned. It takes a while, but finally Knack manages to shoo everyone out of the big top. Then it's just the three of us. Him, me, and Mal in the center of the ring. Sooner or later, we're gonna have to get talking about how the hell we're going to do this, Knack says. Easy, Mal chimes in. Once they let us through the gates, we rush them. As soon as we're inside, we'll have the advantage. There will be more cover, and we can split up and cover more ground and confuse them. We'll be dead to a man before we even get across the campus, says Knack. I was there the other day, and I noticed there are a few service entrances. I think that's our best chance of getting in without anyone noticing. And once I'm inside, if anyone questions why I'm there, I have this. I hold up my hand to show them my tattoo. What's that? asks Knack. Mal spits. The mark of a gunslinger. Knack looks at me, his eyes wide. You were a... Barely, I say, cutting him off. This all sounds like cowardice, Mal says. In my day, we attacked from the front, head on. There was honor in that. And it nearly got every bullet catcher killed and lost you the war, I say. Mal's face twists into a look of contempt. What do you know about it? You know nothing about sacrifice. You know nothing about losing everything. I fix Mal with a cold stare. We both know that ain't true. And for the moment, that seems to settle it. Mal is spent anyway. She seems to shrink into the back of her chair, her face pale, clutching her stomach in pain. I'll help you back to your place. Max says, and she just leans over the side of her chair and spits on the ground. We all sit there, waiting for Mal to gather the energy to see herself back home. And when she finally does, the dark clouds gathered over our meeting follow after her. And then it's just Nack and me, standing there by our lonesome. And I don't exactly know why, but I suddenly start laughing. Nack gives me a look like I'm crazy, but then whatever it seems has gotten into me gets into him as well, and then he's laughing too. And maybe it's because of the stress or the sadness of it all or fear. 
or the absolute ridiculousness of our circumstances. But in this moment, it feels like it's all washed away and I'm clean. Later that night, I find myself back at Nax Vardo. He lets me in after the first knock like he's been waiting on me. I thought we should probably talk about the plan a bit more, I say, stepping inside. But then he pulls me toward him and we start kissing like we've been doing it all our lives. Just natural and easy. Later, we're sitting on the floor, warming ourselves by the stove. His fingers are intertwined with mine. And he brushes his thumb over my tattoo like maybe it'll rub off. He says... I want to know more about Lobo and Cass. The question catches me off guard, and I have to swallow to catch my breath. I pull back my hands and bury them in my pockets. They're dead, I croak. But what were they like when they weren't? Why do you want to know? Might give me a better understanding why we're doing what we're doing. Might be that it lets me better understand you, too. His face is squeezed in that way it gets when he's concerned about me. Don't, I tell him. Don't what? Look at me like that, like I'm some broken little thing. I've survived more than you can even imagine. I rub the place on my hand where my finger used to be, and all I can think is how much I sound like Mal in that moment. And suddenly I feel terrible for laughing at her and angry at Knack for laughing too. And then I'm looking for my jacket. I pull it on and make for the door. You don't have to do that, he says. Let's talk. I'm sorry. I don't give a damn, I say, slamming the door behind me. The next day, Nack holds a meeting with the troop. They gather in the ring under the big top, sitting cross-legged on the dry sand. I sit up in the bleachers away from everyone. I'm a part of them, but I'm still also an outsider. And after last night, I want to keep some space between Nack and me. The point of the meeting is to collaborate on the show they're going to perform for the Gunslingers. But they've put on other dramatic pantomimes before, and they decide pretty quickly that they're just going to use some old one-act about a heroic battle that they all remember from whenever they performed it last and just change around some of the names and words. And I think that's the end of it. Everyone begins to stand and dust off the seats of their pants when Eos raises her hand and just sits there, not moving, until Nack calls on her. I'd love it explained to me why we're putting on a show for those scumbags. Begging your pardon, Nack, but last I knew we all hated the gunslingers. Yourself most of all. Nack looks up at me sitting in the bleachers. So he hadn't told them about what Mal and I had planned. Hell, maybe it's not even his job to tell them. Maybe it should be me. Mal sits in her wheelchair, chewing on the end of a stick like she hadn't heard the question. But like Knack, her eyes rest on me, waiting to see what I'll say or do. I clear my throat, and everyone turns to me. You're performing in order to get Mal and me into the compound. Once we're in, we're going to kill one of the head gunslingers. No one says anything. Most stare at me like they must have misheard. Beg your pardon a second time, Eos says, turning back to Nack. But are we seriously doing this so your girlfriend can settle some vendetta she's got against a gunslinger? I hate the gunslingers as much as anyone, but that sounds crazy. 
No. We're doing it for the coin, Nax says, rubbing his eyes. After this, we'll be able to afford a one-way ticket out of this blasted place. And if you hate the gunslingers as much as you claim, I cut in, then this is your chance to strike back at them. Just because I hate them doesn't mean I'm looking to get shot by one of them, Eo says. And then turning back to Nack, why don't we put it to a vote? Look, I'm the first one, she says, raising her hand again. If you'd rather not get yourself killed for no reason at all, raise your hand. The troop begins to grumble and a few hands begin to raise, their owners looking almost apologetically at Nack. Enough, Nack shouts. This is not a democracy. If you don't like it, you can pack up your Vardo and set out on your own. And good riddance. Eos's bravado melts. She looks behind her at the open flap of the big top as though measuring what it would take to actually pick up and leave the troop. And then she turns back to Nack and just shakes her head. Zephyr comes over and puts his arm around her shoulders. Fine then, Nack says, his voice still raised, as though he'd been expecting to do a lot more shouting. We start rehearsals tomorrow morning, bright and early. He stomps out of the ring and disappears through the flap, and it takes a moment for anyone in the troop to work up the nerve to follow after him. There's a cloud that's fallen over the troop. There's no bonfire burning, no dancing, no fiddle, no stories being told by firelight. Outside, it's cold and quiet, with everyone locked up tight in their own fardos. I figure I might not be seeing much of Knack in the coming days. Just as well. But then comes the knock at the door, and when I answer, it's him. A hangdog look on his face and a bottle in his hand. He's unshaven and wet through from rain. He looks 20 years old. I figure you're still mad at me, he slurs. To be honest, I'm not too happy with you either. You look terrible, I tell him, trying my damnedest not to feel sorry for him. Then I must look better than I feel. He tips back the bottle and takes a mouthful of booze. Why are you here, Nack? He shrugs. I wanted to see you is all. Well, you seen me. He looks up at me for the first time. His eyes are red and puffy. He nods. So I have, he says, and he turns to walk away. But then I grab his shirt sleeve and drag him inside. I take the bottle from his hand and throw it in the muck at the bottom of the steps before closing the door. I sit him down on the bench and unlace and take off his boots. I'm not in the mood, he says. So drunk he's drifting into unconsciousness. Just shut up, I tell him quietly. His socks are full of holes and so wet that I have to peel them off his feet. He's chilled to the bone. He must have been standing out there for who knows how long, trying to find his nerve. I prop his feet up on a chair, close to the stove. I throw in another log and stoke the fire. Then I finish undressing him, drying his hair with his shirt, before wrapping a quilt around him. His eyes are closed by now, and he's snoring gently. For a while, I sit on the bench, just looking at him. This kind, beautiful man, 
all twisted up because of things I've done and plan on doing. I fix his hair that is all ruffled from me toweling it off. These kinds of things have the habit of getting worse before they start getting better. But people like Nack and me have been waiting for better a long time by now. Our whole lives, even. And I get a feeling that, like me, he's sick and tired of waiting. And maybe he drinks a bit when he gets to thinking about it. But that's the difference between him and me. I'm going to make someone pay for better never showing up. I like a story that will take me to extremes. And nothing says extreme quite like The Last City, a new Wondery podcast available now. Set in 2072, the city of Pura is a geo-engineered paradise that protects fortunate residents from the global catastrophes of heat domes, fires, floods, and droughts. Demetria Lopez heads up Pura's public relations, tirelessly promoting the city's idyllic image, which, given its promise of being a miraculous green haven in a climate-ravaged world, shouldn't be too hard to sell, but things are not always as perfect and shiny as we'd like to believe. When she stumbles upon a dark secret that could lead to the downfall of Pura's existence if revealed, she must decide who and what she's willing to protect. From Wondery, the makers of Academy and Dr. Death, The Last City stars actors Ray Seahorn, Jeannie Tirado, and Maury Sterling. Follow The Last City on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can binge all episodes of The Last City early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery+. Plus. Do you like science fiction? I'm Carrie Bechet, and if you loved movies like Arrival or Interstellar, then you're going to want to check out my podcast, Hypothetical. On Hypothetical, we tell speculative sci-fi stories interwoven with real science. New episodes every Tuesday, available wherever you get podcasts. The next morning, Knack wakes, groggy and stiff. He unfolds himself off the chair where I propped his legs and sits looking at the floor, with his elbows on his knees and his head in his hands. Then he looks up and seems to realize for the first time that he's not in his own place. I watch him, ready with a cup of coffee in my hands, and when he sees me, I hand it to him. He takes it with trembling fingers and cups it in his palms. How did I get here? He says, sounding embarrassed. You showed up like a wet dog at my door sometime after midnight. He sips the coffee and leans back against the wall. I'm sorry, he says. Wish I could say it was unlike me, but sometimes I get to drinking and don't know when to quit. Last night when I saw that bottle in your hand, I got to thinking how whenever we seemed to get close, you had a drink in your hand. And then I started thinking that maybe, even when you liked me okay, what you were really liking was the bottle. He looks up at me, his eyes bloodshot and sad. That's not true. And I still like you. That's why I'm all torn up. Because how do I do right by you and right by my troop? It seems no matter what I do, one of you is going to hate me when it's all said and done. And the best I can figure is to put an end to the whole damn thing. But I know if I did that, you'd never talk to me again. He's staring at his hands while he says this. But when he gets to that part, he looks back up at me, as though to confirm what he'd been thinking. And he must see it, because then he rubs his eyes and looks up at the ceiling. 
Maybe I'm just too much a coward to tell you no and risk you hating me. From outside come the voices of the Irregulars, rising to start their day. The smell of breakfast, grits and ham and strong coffee. I cock my head to the window and say, if you dilly any longer, they might start suspecting you were ignoring your duties to spend time with me. He sighs. They already think I'm in love with you. And then he stands and hands me the half-drunk cup. Thanks, he says. For the coffee and for seeing I didn't freeze last night. Up in the bleachers, I can watch the troop rehearse and stay out of the way. The small potential mutiny of the other day has passed like a shadow, and the troop seems more comfortable now that they're back to what they know how to do best, performing. Even if that performance is only for each other as they go through blocking and line prep and rewrites. They only have a week to prepare, so there's no time to waste. And not only that, but for it all to work, Mal needs to feature, front and center. Since it was her performance that brought the gunslingers to the big top in the first place, and her getting shot that seemed to give the gunslingers the idea that maybe it'd be a good idea to invite the troop to perform for them. Her being seen on the big day is essential. They've been rehearsing for most of the day, and they look it. The sharp attention to detail has begun to wane as the tiredness and hunger set in. Mal, though on stage, sits in her chair, a sheaf of papers with her lines printed on them resting in her lap. And though she's gone through the whole rehearsal sitting in that chair, she looks pale and winded from so much time out of bed with that bullet wound, still fresh enough that I'm not sure the thread keeping her together can stand the strain of a full day talking and moving about. The idea that in a week's time she'll have to be up on her feet, on stage, moving and fighting, even if it is only play fighting, cast doubt over the whole thing. They run through the last scene, and Nack throws up his hands, the sweat dappled on his forehead, and says, That's it for today. Good job, everyone. Everyone's smiling and clapping, and looking forward to dinner and a night stretched out in front of a fire to rest their sore feet. But when the players stop clapping, the sound of one person applauding lingers in the air. It's coming from the entrance to the big top. Everyone turns to see who it is. I sidle to the other end of the bleachers, peer over the side, and there, standing in the aisle, is Nico. Looks good, he says, walking up to the stage and leaning his elbows on the boards. Think you'll be ready by next week? Mal hacks a wet, mucusy cough and says, Might we'd be a lot more ready if one of your people hadn't put a bullet in my gut. I am mighty sorry about that, Nico says. But it's good to see you making a recovery. Mal lets out a short laugh that sounds more like punctuation than anything else. She turns away and makes a show of reading through her lines. Something I can help you with, Nack says, stepping forward. Just wanted to sneak a peek, Nico says. And some of the bigwigs wanted to make sure things were progressing in time for the show, especially with the, uh, added challenges. That you caused, Mal says without looking up from her papers. Yes, that we caused, Nico agrees. You can tell them that we're doing just fine. Everything will be ready on the day. Good to hear. Nico says, slapping the stage. 
I'm personally looking forward to it immensely. He turns to leave, and as he's striding down the aisle, he looks up, only for a moment, and his eyes flash like he sees me up there in the shadows. But then he looks away, and never so much as breaks his stride on his way out of the big top. And then I don't really know what I'm thinking or what I'm planning on doing if I confront him. But the next thing I know, I'm climbing down the bleachers and tailing after him as he exits the lot and climbs into a carriage. It's early evening and the streets are full of people returning home from work. The carriage progresses slowly down the thoroughfare and it's easy tailing it as it crawls through traffic. The carriage doesn't head toward the Capitol building. Instead, it heads down progressively darkening streets peopled by far less foot traffic until the street is nearly totally quiet and deserted. I've been trailing the carriage for a little over half an hour when it comes to a stop on the corner of a darkened avenue out front of a saloon, so decrepit and ramshackle that it wouldn't look out of place standing on the dusty corner of some one-horse Southland town. The door to the carriage opens and out steps Nico. He looks around, buttons his coat, and heads into the bar. His partner jumps down from his seat and goes around to his horse to feed him a carrot and give him a pat behind the ears. Watching from the darkness of the far corner of the block, I wait to see if Nico will emerge. But after a few minutes pass and Nico hasn't shown himself, I take a deep breath and head into the bar. In opposition to the quietness of the street, the bar buzzes with conversation and singing and the clatter of drinks. The place smells damp, and a haze of cigarette smoke hangs low over the heads of the packed occupants, like a mess of gray halos. A woman sings solemnly up on a low stage at the back of the room. I stick to the doorway, looking out for Nico, but can't pick him out from the throng of people. A man at the bar collects an armful of drinks and hauls them back to his table. And behind him is Nico, sitting on a stool, a half-drunk pint of beer before him. In his hands is a newspaper. He reads as though he doesn't have a care in the world. And the very fact that he could be so careless, so worry-free, sets my blood boiling. He looks up from his paper, turns, and spots me. And this time, I'm sure of it. He stares right at me, his expression unchanged. And then he lifts a hand and waves me over as though we were old friends. I go over to him. What else is there to do? He watches me the whole way, probably in case I go for someone's shooter or suddenly reveal a knife from my pocket. But I have no knife, and I'm not going to try to shoot him. Not here, where there's a million places and people to use for cover. You took your time showing up. Not scared of me, I hope. Scared, no. Feeling murderous towards, you damn right. And to prove I'm not scared, I take the stool next to him. He flags the bartender and orders me a pint. How are they treating you over at the carnival? There's an edge to his voice that gets me thinking he's poking fun at me. Whatever they are, they're better company than the people you've thrown in with. He nods and sips his drink, staring off into space. Can't argue with you there, he says. My drink arrives and Nico puts a few coins on the counter. And then I can't take it anymore and I grab him by the shirt and pull him close to me. Let's take this outside right now, I tell him. You and me. 
He swallows, but his face tells me he's unafraid. His hand rests on the butt of his gun, but he hasn't drawn it. You calling me out? You're damn right. Carefully, he takes my fingers and unfolds them from his shirt. He straightens out his clothes and leans back. Sorry, sis, but this ain't the Southland. There are different rules here. You shoot me down and you won't make it a block before you're surrounded by gunslingers. I'm willing to risk it. I ain't. Even if you think killing me will give you some measure of peace. Then why are you here, if not to settle this? Might be that I wanted to see you. Well, you seen me. Now what? He searches my face as though looking for something. You want to settle this? Once and for all? You know I do. He looks around the room before surreptitiously drawing a paper from his pocket. He slugs the last of his drink and places the empty glass on top of the paper on the bar. As he stands to leave, he leans over my shoulder and whispers, Don't be late. And when I turn, he's gone. Almost like he was never there at all. And I might even be able to convince myself of that, if not for the paper he left on the bar. I grab it and run out after him, but the carriage is already gone. I unfold the paper and it's Nico's itinerary for the day of the show, where he'll be and when. His location for an hour after the show is scheduled to begin is circled in red pencil. So that's where he wants to do it. Fine then, I'll be there. You're listening to Bullet Catcher Season 2 by Joaquin Lowe. Produced by Realm, your portal to another world. Listen away. Anna Sheridan, New York Times bestselling author of Supernatural Horror. Missing for nearly six months now. That's not possible. Is the compass broken? Or did I... Given the circumstances of her disappearance, someone with a more vivid imagination might decide she'd pierce the veil, so to speak. Weak radio signal. 700 meters. Closing fast. There's no place for ghost stories and close encounters in this investigation, or any other. I need you to find me. Of course. What else would it be? The Shared Tapes, a serialized horror mystery podcast. Stream the complete series today on Realm and on all podcasting platforms. Bullet Catcher is written by Joaquin Lowe. Produced by Marco Palmieri and executive produced by Molly Barton. Performed by Inez Del Castillo. Audio produced, directed, and designed by Amanda Rose Smith. Additional editing by Corey Barton. Original theme composed by Hashem Asadolahi, with performances by Justin Morell and Josh Deutsch. Cover art by Christine Barcelona.